Well, on Sundays, we've been in Psalm 119, as you probably know, that longest psalm, what some have called a love poem for God's word. It's indeed lofty. The language is effusive. It's emotional. It's expressive in giving thanks and praise to God for his glorious word. And so a number of times I found myself saying something like, if this kind of high praise was fitting for the man who wrote Psalm 119 back then, whenever then was, how much more true is it now? If this guy could say this kind of stuff about the Bible, of which we have so much more now, How much more should we give thanks to God for his perfect word and his complete word? Well, tonight I'd like to illustrate that thought a little bit more by taking us to Hebrews 1 in the New Testament. Hebrews 1, towards the end of the New Testament. I'd like us to look at four verses, at least to start with, and then we'll dip in a little bit further into the book of Hebrews beyond that in just a bit. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Follow along if you have a Bible, open with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, three headings for these verses. How God spoke long ago, how God has spoken in these last days, and thirdly, why the latter of those is the full and final word. Let's start with the first, how God spoke long ago. This is verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is referring to how God spoke Really, in the whole Old Testament. Don't just think prophets as, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the the 12, 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. It's not just referring to those kind of prophets. Don't just think prophets are those people who predicted the future, foretold what was to come. No, sometimes prophets do that, and then sometimes they more generally speak for God in a variety of ways. So Noah is called a prophet and a preacher. And Moses was an unparalleled prophet of the Old Testament. And Samuel was a kind of prophet. And of course, Nathan was a prophet. Really, the whole Old Testament is is prophet-like. It's prophetic. It comes to us through the hands of God's prophets. And so Hebrews 1, verse 1, begins with a reference to Old Testament scripture in which God spoke to the fathers of old. 
He spoke long ago, notice, at many times and in many ways. Praise God for that. Now, I'm fully aware that verse 1, if you notice, look down, it's only the first half of a sentence, and verse 2 completes the sentence. I'm fully aware that verse 1 is the setup for a contrast between two things, and the better thing isn't in verse 1, it's in verse 2. That said, I don't think verse 1 is necessarily dogging the Old Testament. In fact, I'm sure it's not. After all, the Old Testament is what God spoke. It's what God spoke. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and said, All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for, for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness. Much of the New Testament at that point hadn't yet been penned, let alone disseminated. And so I think Paul would have had to have the Old Testament predominantly in mind when he said all scripture is breathed out by God. So don't rush over verse 1 too quickly. Don't rush over. Thank God for the variety of history and poetry and wisdom and prophecy that we have in the Old Testament. Thank him afresh for the variety of human instruments like Moses and David and Obadiah, the forgotten prophet. Thank him for the intriguing variety of ways in which he spoke through his men. In a burning bush, from atop Mount Sinai, alone in a tent with Moses, through a donkey, and in the whirlwind. Thank God for... For all these, thank him for the sheer volume of the Old Testament. Thank him afresh for our time in Psalm 119, where there's just a, a mine of, of gems over and over showing, shown to us. I stress this point in part because occasionally we hear of someone who expresses a concern about the Old Testament, even a professed Christian We'll say something along the lines of, you know, the Old Testament having a different God than the New Testament. Or that Old Testament morality can't possibly be sufficiently explained to our progressive generation today. So Andy Stanley recently, pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, he made a call for Christians to, quote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. He essentially said, we don't need the Old Testament when we have the New Testament. He said, too many, especially young people, give up on the Christian faith because they have hang-ups with the Old Testament. And so, essentially, he's saying, let's remove the stumbling block for them so they don't leave the faith. Now, the Old Testament isn't the final word. We know that. Verse 2 is coming. The New Testament, in fact, provides us with the interpretive key of the Old Testament. Yes, but the Old Testament doesn't need to be unhitched from our faith or from the New Testament. It needs to be properly hitched. 
And when it's properly hitched, then we thank God that he spoke long ago, many times, in many ways. And then, and then we're ready to understand what he spoke after that. And then we can begin to put the puzzle pieces together, how they fit in a coherent way. Secondly, verse 2 tells us how God has spoken in these last days. How has God spoken in these days, these last days? Now, before we read the little verse that says this, just what does he mean by last days? Sometimes in the Bible, last days can refer to the final days, the, the literal last days. But sometimes last days can just mean that period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So Peter, back in Acts 2, could say that what was happening that day in Jerusalem at Pentecost with the speaking of tongues and prophesying, he says that's what Joel predicted about the last days, meaning they were in the last days then, and meaning we are in the last days now. Notice here in Hebrews 1, it says these last days. They're still current. He doesn't say those last days or the future last days still to come. You see, Jesus is coming. It's the last big thing. Now that Jesus has come, in his first coming, we are in the final phase of history. These are all last days. And in these last days, verse 2, God has spoken to us by his Son. In the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets in many ways, many times, long ago. But now he has spoken to us by his Son. And that's unique it's singular. Not many prophets, one. It's definitive. It's decisive. He's the son. Prophets are good, but I mean the son. That's, that's the real deal. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Elsewhere, we find out that Jesus is the word of God incarnate, in the flesh. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So God has spoken to us in the appearing of Jesus, what we call his incarnation. When people saw him, when John the Baptist pointed to him, when people experienced his miracles and, and heard his teaching, God was speaking in the flesh. But more than that can still be said. Let me argue for you. Let me argue and show, show to you that when it says here in Hebrews 1, God spoke by his son, that actually means the whole New Testament scriptures. Not just the appearance of Jesus, not just the red letters of Jesus, not just the gospel accounts, but the whole New Testament scriptures. Turn back in your Bibles to John 14 with me. Jesus is the one who tells us this. John 14. He tells us that it will happen before it happens. This is the upper room discourse. He's alone with the apostles. He's giving special words to them. 
I'm going to read some verses from chapter 14, 16, and 17. And I'll give you a heads up that these are verses that sometimes are taken by Christians to refer to the Holy Spirit's ministry to all believers. But they're actually more specific than that. These verses are about the Holy Spirit's ministry through the apostles, and which by extension then bless all believers. Let me show you what I'm referring to. John 14, verse 25, Jesus says to these apostles, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, more things, and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Now turn over to John 16. John 16, verse 12. Again, he's still talking to these same apostles, and he says, I still have many things to say to you, many more things to say to you. If you were there, you might say, well, go ahead, Jesus, say them. Well, you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, more truth, full truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see how these verses are not necessarily for all believers, at least not immediately. These are specific to apostles. These verses are promising the Holy Spirit's ministry to remind the apostles of what Jesus said and to direct them further in greater truth still to come. You even have a hint, I think, at the variety of their writings in the New Testament. You see, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what I've said. That's the gospel accounts. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. That probably might be fulfilled in the epistles. And he will declare to you things that are still to come. Referring to any part of the New Testament that might talk about Jesus' return or the consummation. Now look also at John 17. John 17. Here, still in the upper room, alone with the apostles. And here Jesus is now praying for them. For them. Verse 8. For I have given them, Jesus says to the Father, I have given them the words that you gave me. This is past tense. He's already taught them. And they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Past tense. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 20, I, I do not ask for these only. Here's where it gets broader. But also for those who will believe in the future, in me, through their word. What word? 
Well, not just their spoken word. This is not fulfilled merely in the preaching of the book of Acts or even the preaching of the first century. Jesus is praying for all who will believe through their word. Their written word. Only the written word continues to be read and preached from and continues to bear fruit and continues to make converts millennia later. Not their spoken word, which would only have great impact, yes, but only for one generation. And this is why it is said in Ephesians 2 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. God has spoken to us now by his son and by extension, his spirit and his apostles. He has spoken not just in the physical appearance of Christ that a few thousand, maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000, I don't know, but however many saw him visibly and bodily in the first century, God has spoken to them, yes, in the bodily appearance of Jesus, the word in the flesh, yes. And God has spoken to us, he has spoken in Jesus through what he taught. The red letters of the Bible, if you will. But it is the whole apostolic package recording what Christ said, what Christ did, and all of the various implications worked out in the rest of the New Testament as they were led by the Holy Spirit to see these things and teach these things. So thirdly, it's not obvious already, let's ask why the latter then, the New Testament, is the full and final word. A lot of theologians over the years have used those two F words, full and final, about what comes to us in the New Covenant revelation. It's decisive, that'd be another word. The New Testament is the decisive, final in full word. Now, personally, I, I don't think that that doesn't necessarily mean that God can never speak outside of the Bible or he could never lead outside of, of what's written down in Scripture. Certainly in the book of Acts, there's some supernatural leading or speaking that isn't actually, it gets recorded in Scripture, but it's not quite the same thing as inscripturated speech per se. But... That said, we're still not looking for another book to put after Revelation, right? We're not desperate for archaeological digs who will give us a 28th New Testament book. We have what constitutes the full and final authority. Or as Peter wrote, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So why is the latter, the, the New Testament, the full and final and decisive word, and, and how do we know it? Well, I've started to answer it already. Verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, already answered it. It's, it's by his son. Prophets are good. The son is even better. It's by what Jesus foretold in John 14 and 16 and 17 that his spirit would lead his apostles into further truth. But the rest of our passage in Hebrews 1, 
actually unpack six to eight aspects, depending on how you want to count them, six to eight aspects of who Jesus is and what he's done that tell us why the New Testament is the full and final and decisive word. So let me list them as six. One, because he's the heir. He's the heir, verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, the, the recipient, the, the one who inherits it all. This goes back to the language of Psalm 2, where God says to his only son, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And here it says he's the heir of all things, everything. In Matthew 28, Jesus said he has all authority. He's the heir. Of course, he's the son, the unique son. Then, secondly, he's the creator. Through whom also he created the world. Here we find out, just like Colossians 1 says, John 1 as well, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is actually the means by which these worlds were spoken into existence. And the same voice which spoke worlds into existence gave us his word through the Holy Spirit by the hands of the apostles. He's the creator. Thirdly, he's glorious slash divine, according to verse 3. Listen to this language. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And this is beautiful language and shocking language. Jesus, the man, is also God. As Colossians 2 says, in him the fullness of deity dwells. Or as John 1 says, we, we have seen his glory, and it's the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and so you can trust his word. It is the decisive word. You, you want to see the Father, Jesus said? You look at him. You want to know the Father? You can know the Father. You start by knowing the Son. Fourth, he's the sustainer. The rest of verse 3, well, the middle of verse 3, I suppose, he says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer of this world. And he does it by just a word. How many times have we said, you know, our words really by themselves affect nothing. I can say to my kids, clean your room. The words themselves don't do it. A threat might do it, right? Uh, some sort of bribe might do it. But, but the words themselves have no power. They can't affect change because of the power of the word itself. But, but God's word is different, and Jesus upholds the whole universe. I love that it says universe here and not just earth. I mean, it's bigger than earth, and they knew it back then. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Fifth, he's the sacrifice and 
priest. See, at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what Hebrews will go on to articulate at great length is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament role of the priest, yes, but also as the sacrifice. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. He plays both roles. He's the the pure, unblemished sacrifice that finally worked, that took away sin, because he's not an animal. He's one of us, and he's God, and so his sacrifice counts for a whole lot more than just yours would if you even could make a pure sacrifice. But on the other side of the equation, he's also the perfectly righteous priest, and he He made a sacrifice once and was done. And hence, he sat down. As it will go on later to say in chapter 10, the priests of the Old Covenant were always making sacrifices, making sacrifices, making sacrifices. It was never done. It wasn't just on the Day of Atonement. This was a bloody, butchery kind of job they had. And there was no seat available to them in the Holy of Holies, or outside it. They couldn't sit down. The work was never done. But Christ, having made sacrifice for sins, and having brought purification to those who would believe this to be true for themselves, he sat down. It shows that he's finished and that he's exalted. Who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, the prince, the the king junior, you could say, the king himself. He's exalted. If you're not a Christian, you're here with us tonight. We're so glad you're with us. I would really point your attention to these verses. I mean, either these verses are saying something true about Jesus of Nazareth, or these, these are horrible words. I mean, this is, this is just blasphemy. To attribute these things to a man, or worse, a charlatan? Well, either the Bible is true, or it is damnable. You better get it right. Because it's a big difference, right? We'd say it's right, and we would say... Jesus is the key that unlocks it all. I mean, you not only have to understand who he is and what he said, but you also have to understand what he did and what he maybe did for you. Purification for sins. You'd have to agree with him that you have sins, that there's such a thing as guilt before a holy God. You have to come to believe that when he died on that cross for sins... He died in such a way and was risen in such a way that he can purify all your sins. I pray you'd know that this evening. And then sixthly, preeminent. He's preeminent. Or as verse 4 says, he's superior. He's become as much superior to angels, the highest of God's creation outside of Christ, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Philippians 2 tells us he has a name which is above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is superior to angels. And so, the God who variously spoke in days of old, in many times, in many ways, he has now spoken to us in these last days through his one and only son. This is decisive. This is definitive. His son is the heir, the creator, the glorious God himself. He is sustainer, the sacrifice, the priest, the one reigning on high, the one who's preeminent even superior to angels. And you might say, so what? So what? What are the implications then? What's the point? What am I supposed to do? How do we apply this, people sometimes say. What is it wanting me to change? What am I supposed to do differently? You might say, well, this is about the Bible. Maybe the point of this passage is to read the Bible. That's well, not a... A bad thing to say or to conclude. But Hebrews will go on from here to say some other things which make it clear that the primary point of the book of Hebrews is not just to read the Bible more or even especially the New Testament some more. No. You see, to really grasp the significance and purpose of the first few verses of the book of Hebrews, you have to read on. And so since this is a one-off message, not week one in a series in the book of Hebrews, would you mind if I read to you some more from the book of Hebrews so you can more fully understand the point of the first few verses? So turn over to Hebrews 3, verse 1. I asked a question, if you would mind. It was a rhetorical question. Of course we're going to. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Now, what we have between Hebrews 1, verse 4, and Hebrews 3, verse 1, is more instruction, more Old Testament exposition, the unpacking of truths and history. And then, these are scattered throughout the book of Hebrews. There are, well, therefores. There are implications. There are what we sometimes call imperatives. And here is the first, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what you're supposed to do. Consider Jesus. Consider him. Ponder him. Meditate upon him. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Or skip down to verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care of your heart. Make sure it's not an unbelieving heart. Don't fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another. You take care personally and you exhort each other every day as long as it's called today. Skip to chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 14, go there. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, keep believing. Keep believing the same thing we've come to believe. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go to chapter 6, verse 11. There it says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now from the second half of chapter 6 all the way through to the middle of chapter 10, there are no imperatives really, no instruction, no therefores like these. It's more teaching, it's more Old Testament exposition, unpacking things of the old, showing how Christ is the fulfillment of them. And we could go to Hebrews 10, verse 19, where we get the next big therefore, but we won't. We'll go to chapter 10, verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days, not Old Testament days, uh, yesteryear of your conversion. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened or converted, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see there in the middle of verse 39, skip ahead there. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere with their souls. So the book of Hebrews is written to a people who started well with Jesus. And trouble came. And for a while, they endured that trouble gladly. Gladly. But the trouble kept coming. And they grew weary. They began to wonder whether this Jesus thing is worth it. Whether it's panning out. They began to turn back. And they thought that their good old religion that they left behind, you know, the stuff of burning things, sacrificing things, observing things, keeping things. The things of the Old Testament law, they, they, oh, they missed those. Those were familiar. Those were concrete and tangible. Besides, when you were doing those, no one bothered you. They started well. Trouble came. For a while, they accepted the trouble with joy. And then some began to turn back, sick of the trouble. That's why the book of Hebrews is written, for people like that. It's written for people maybe who are here this evening who are just a little weary with this. 
just a little weary with Bible, a little weary of Sunday morning church, a little weary of I should pray more, a little weary when we talk about, you know, the financial support of God's kingdom and his church. Just weary of it all. And you wonder, is it worth it? Well, hear this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir, the heir, the owner of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe with a word. After he made purification for your sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become, oh, so much more superior to angels. And he has a name that's more excellent than theirs. That's who we trust in. That's who we follow. That's who can get us through. That's who we must have our eyes on. That's the one from whom you dare not ignore. That's, that's the one from whom you dare not turn away. Keep on. Keep on with him. So we do turn to the word, and again and again turn to the word to see him. We need him. We need reminding. The world around us is preaching loudly and frequently in different chords and tones and keys than our Bibles would teach us. And so we need the Bible, yes. But we need the Christ of the Bible. And we have him if we're in him.